The following audio session was recorded live at the 2017 Region 2 Convention in Costa Mesa, California. Please visit oar2.org for information about the 2018 convention in Sacramento and to get links for more convention recordings. Thank you for listening. We should get started. I'm Harlan. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I come here from Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, originally, as you'll find out, I'm from Chicago, Illinois. So there are, there's Lake Michigan running through these veins all over the place. I'm born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm especially excited to be here today because today is Founders Day in Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is June the 10th. And on this date in 1935, Dr. Bob had his first day of sobriety. And so today is a very, very special day in the history of all 12-step programs. All 12-step programs take their, um, take their lead from AA. And AA was started on this date in 1935. How appropriate for us to be here today studying the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I am not one of those people who woke up one day and said, oh my God, I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 80, and I can't stop eating. That is not my story. My story is a story of an immediate hit, an immediate mugging from this disease. And from the time I was an infant, I was eating compulsively. I'm sure that this disease had me in its grip while I was still in diapers. And I have vivid memories of being three and four years old and people yelling and screaming at my mother and my father about how fat I was getting and how much food I was eating. And it disturbed them. And it disturbed my parents that they were getting yelled at because of my weight and because of my food. And they themselves were both compulsive overeaters as well. So we were a family of three, and we were all compulsive overeaters. And when I got to be five and six years old, sometimes I got to sit down. I'm getting old here. Uh, I'm getting old. I just turned 63 a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. When I was five and six years old, seven years old, people started screaming directly at me. And they told me things like, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. I found out they were right. When I don't eat so much, I feel anger better, I feel fear better, I feel jealousy better, I feel all kinds of feelings much, much better. And as these feelings burst to the surface in my mind and in my soul, the only thing my mind knew was to drive me into the arms of an Oreo cookie. And as I would drive into the arms of an Oreo cookie seeking relief from this pain, I couldn't stop once I had started. And I have vivid memories of trying to control my weight, even as an eight and a nine-year-old, which I'll get into in a minute. 
But when I was a kid, people would say things to me like, if you loved your mom, you won't eat so much. If you loved your dad, you wouldn't eat so much. And none of that is true. I loved my mom. I loved my dad. My mom was crazy. My mom was mentally ill. My mom had three distinct personalities. And you never knew which one was going to last very long or what you were going to get. She could be a three-year-old and then breathe in air. And then you'd see her face change and she'd be a screaming, raving lunatic. And then she'd breathe in more air. And then her face would change and her, her expressions would change. And she could be a pretty together, pretty normal person. She could be a very, very normal person. So you never knew what you were going to get, and I hated her for that. I hated her because it was embarrassing. I hated her because it was unpredictable, and I hated her for it because it it really made me angry that I couldn't have a young, hip, slick mom. I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents. I got Max and Virginia Grabowski. Very different, very different than Rob and Laura Petrie. And my mom and dad fought every minute of every day. They would show their love for one another with pots and pans flying through the air, lit cigarettes flying through the air at each other, and saying things to each other that you wouldn't say to your worst enemy. They, when I was five and six years old, I became the head of the household, and my mom would come to me when I was five and say, I hate your father, the only reason I live here is because of you. And my father would say, I hate your mother. The only reason I live here is because of you. And I'm just watching Yogi Bear and Boo Boo Bear and hoping that they get away with the picnic basket because Ranger Smith is coming around the corner. And I didn't know what to make of all this, but I somehow internalized that this is not normal. I'm not saying that I internalized that it was my fault. I'm saying I internalized that this was not matching up to what I saw on Leave it to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet and the Dick Van Dyke show and all the other shows that I was watching on TV People didn't talk that way to one another. They didn't talk that way about one another, let alone to one another. And so I got the impression from watching TV that this was absolutely not normal. So when I was nine years old, I went to the doctor in Chicago, Dr. Jacobson, and he put me on diet pills at nine, and they were heavy-duty amphetamines. And I I took three of those pills every day, and those pills work, let me tell you. Holy mackerel. It was 1963, the year Kennedy was killed, yes. It was 1963, and... I could still feel where the temples of my head would just pound, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And you sleep about 20 minutes a month, and you can't hear what anybody is saying to you. Like, they're talking to you, but it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. You can't really hear what they're saying to you. And you, you say, and I get accused of this now, you say the same thing like 300 times. Like, you know, you'll say, it's really cold out. It's really cold out. And I'm in my head saying, stop. You've, you've already, yeah, we get it. It's cold out. You know, but I can't stop saying it. It's like motor mouth. You just can't, I can't control when I'm on those amphetamines. 
And then when I got to, but I lost weight. But when those pills would wear off, those amphetamines would wear off, it was like going on a roller coaster to the top and then dropping to the bottom. And then I would eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin until it was time to take the next pill. It was, it was whacked out, whacked out completely. I'm sorry? Oh. But anyway, um, when I was 10... They started, 1964, some of the early information started coming out about the dangers of these pills, these, these amphetamines. And they switched me from a pink pill three times a day to a blue pill four times a day. So it was exactly the same effect. It was just like switching seats on the Titanic. It was really the same thing. And I lost quite a bit of weight. But of course, as you know, if you, whether you're listening on a podcast or a CD or you're in this room right now, uh, as a compulsive overeater, the minute that pill wore off, I would eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin because you, you don't even come up for air, for God's sakes. And as a teenager, things really started to get past me uh, in terms of what I could control or what I could understand because puberty started setting in. Now, you hear a lot about the 60s, and, and I tried a lot of different ways of losing weight. Lose weight with AIDS, A-Y-D-S, the candies, uh, remember those? And I did, as a, as a teenager, I did Weight Watchers, I did Tops, I was a Tops king, I was a Weight Watcher king. I remember I have very distinct memories of that. And um, always the food returned, and I would lose weight on the slingshot plan. I would lose 80 and gain 120. I would lose 50 and gain 70. I never went back to where I was. I always ended up heavier than I had ever been in my entire life. And that was just the way my weight was. It was on that slingshot kind of situation. Food was my comfort. Food was my lover. Food was my respite. It was my bridge over troubled waters, if I can coin the title of a song from the 60s. But you hear in the 60s about how everybody wanted to dance to their own drummer or hogwash. We all wanted to look the same. We all wanted to be the same. And all the clothes from the 1960s were skin tight and straight as an arrow. And I couldn't wear any of that. And um, so I had to go into the old neighborhood in Chicago, Albany Park neighborhood. My dad would bring me down there, and whatever clothes would fit me, that's what I would have to wear. So I was wearing clothes that went out of style before World War II. And I had four or five pairs of pants at times, every one the same color, every one the same style, every one the same size. So it looked like I wore the same pair of pants for like a year or whatever at a time. And my shirts and my pants were not like the other kids. I didn't look like the other kids, and that really wounded me tremendously. This disease came into my life and tore me asunder. It tore me apart. It was relentless. It was unmerciful what this disease did to me. And um, as a teenager, it was very, very difficult for me, hitting puberty. I had the feelings for the girls. Of course, they didn't have them for me. Um, 
looking back at the lost years of my life relative to this, if I had been addicted to any other substance, I would have been okay in that area. I would have been fine. But the situation was I was addicted to food, which took me out of that ball game, took me out of that dating ball game. I was to go on my first date when I was 35 years of age. That was the first date that I ever went on. And um, it was very difficult for me from another perspective as well, and that is my dad was 54 years old when I was born. My dad came out of Europe, the sole survivor of the murder and mayhem of the most vicious anti-Semitism prior to World War II that the world had ever seen when Europe was a graveyard for Jews. And in an extended family of 40 people that lived in a village in Russia, he was the sole survivor. He was the only one that survived. And he came to this country on the run. He came to this country with bullets in his back. And he came to this country with severe post-traumatic stress disorder. He never, ever uh, went more than a day or two without bursting into tears about his parents and his sisters and his nieces and nephews. He was 14 years old when he came to this country and at 14 didn't speak a word of English and came to a country where he knew no one. He just knew that there were people from the, from the surrounding villages that were in Chicago and that's how he ended up in Chicago because there were people from Kabrin and people from Bialystok and people from some of the other villages that had settled there and he knew that and he went there unknowing of anything and he was very wounded, very, very wounded and the hatred that that was shown him was reflected back by him toward the world that he was born into. He never burst into tears because they were killed. He would also burst he would often burst into tears because he lived and he had tremendous survivor's guilt. The murder and the mayhem that he saw, that he witnessed, the sounds, the screaming, the shooting, the yelling, the smells of death. These things haunted him throughout his life. He could be walking down the street and he would smell something or hear something or a conversation would hit a certain word and he would just go, he would be right back there. He would be right back in that house on that fateful night before Easter when the murder and mayhem occurred. And this is something that affected me because I wanted to protect him. I wanted to let him know that he was safe and I could never, ever, I remember when he died, the, the day my dad died in 1978, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, one of my very good friends, uh, she, she's a lady that I've been friends with forever, and she turned to me on the cemetery, turned to us, our friends on the cemetery, and said, Mr. G, my last name is Grabowski, but Mr. G is finally safe. She said, there's nothing they can do to him now. He outlived all of his murderers. All the people that came to kill him, he outlived them, and he died of natural causes. And the chances of him dying of natural causes were one in 10,000. I mean, considering where he lived and when he lived there, I mean, but he did die in, uh, of natural causes, which was a miracle in and of itself. Um, but as a teenager... Uh, there was something else that was happening in my life. I was gaining weight in leaps and bounds. I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school and never went to the homecoming, never went to any of the dances, never got to do any of that stuff. And so that was, that was very hurtful for me. 
but as a, as a kid in high school, my mom and dad were physically and mentally declining. My mom's greatest ambition in life was to become an invalid and die, and she was doing that. My dad, he was very afraid of the world that he was born into. He was scared to death to be a part of this world. He would tell me every day of my life, when they came to kill me, I got away. One day they're going to come and kill you. And he'd say, if they don't kill you, they'll kill your children. He says, that's just what they do. And I'm growing up in this. And when I was 17 years old, my dad was a heavy, heavy smoker. Chesterfield, no filter, king size, one after the other. And um, we went to the oncologist because he had had emphysema for a long time. And that emphysema was starting to metastasize, but we didn't know it. And I, I took him when I was 17 years old to the oncologist. And the oncologist told me that your dad has early stage cancer. And I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, nothing. He says, it's spread all around. There's really nothing we can do at this point. And I said, well, how long do you think he has? And I'm 17 dealing with this. And I don't have brothers and sisters. I don't have aunts, uncles, cousins, brother. I don't have any of that. And I'm dealing with this, and I'm not really equipped to deal with this. And he said six to seven years. My dad died almost seven years to the date, to the day of that diagnosis. Amazing. But anyway, when I was 22 and my friends were going away to colleges and doing the things that 22-year-old boys do, I was dealing with a lot of things. And my mom had to be on dialysis from this disease. And in Chicago, there's a lot of days when it's not real pleasant to be in a car. Let me assure you, if you are there any Chicagoans in this room at all? One? Where, where are you from? Park Forest, not exactly, but you're, you're close. Okay, I got you. You're way south on Kedzie Avenue there, right? Right off of Kedzie? Okay, got you. Okay, um, but there's days in Park Forest and there's days in Chicago where it's not real pleasant to be driving a car. That snow is up to your ass, and you're driving a car, and it's, well, when you're on dialysis, <laughs> you got you, you got to get to that dialysis center, and if you're not there when they call your name, they take the next person. You'll wait there for hours and hours and hours, and they'll shrug their shoulders, and they'll say, I'm very sorry, you were late. So you missed your spot. They'll take you, but they'll take you at the end. You could have a 9 o'clock appointment, and if you miss it, you might be seen by 4, 4.30, maybe seen by 4, 4.30. And dialysis was very primitive at that time, and the shunt used to get infected, blah, blah, blah. And when I was 22, my mother passed away, mercifully. And she had her leg amputated by this illness. This, this illness tore her asunder. It tore her limb from limb, as it did me. And the last coherent conversation that I ever had with my mother, uh, the last coherent conversation that I had with her, she begged me to stop eating so much. She begged me to find a way not to eat so much. And the last conversation, now I told you my dad had cancer. Now my mom was younger, way younger than my dad, but he, she died first. And when she died, uh, it was tough on the two of us because now he was really declining very badly. But when he died in 1978, uh, he, was, he was riddled with cancer from one end to the other. I mean, he was always a big guy. He was the Russian bear. He was six feet tall in a generation of Jewish men that were 5'3", five, 5'4". Five, 
and spoke very little English, only spoke English when he had to, and he resented the crap out of speaking English. Didn't want to, didn't feel that he should be forced to, but had, when he had to, he could get by. Um, but it was tough on him, and at the, at the end, his English left him completely, so he couldn't communicate with any of the nurses, he couldn't communicate with anyone at the hospital, and I'd constantly be having to go as an intercessor between him and the nurses, or him and the doctors, or him and whoever, because he couldn't communicate with them. And the last conversation I had with him was he begged me to find a way to not eat so much. He, he begged me to find a way to, to curb my appetite, as he would often say. And um, he died in November of 1978. He died on the 11th of November. And you can believe whatever you want to believe. If you are an atheist, you are welcome here and you are fine. If you are an agnostic, you are welcome here and you are fine. We welcome you with open arms. And if you are a believer, we welcome you with open arms. But as for me, I choose to believe that my dad had great stead with the Lord. And I know that he's in heaven because he lived hell on earth. I wouldn't wish his life on anybody. He was scared to death, and I could not protect him. My greatest dream in life was to protect him. And as I told you, when he died, my friend Melinda turned to me on the cemetery, turned to us on the cemetery and said, Mr. G is safe. There's nothing they can do to him now. He outlived his murderers. He outlived all the people that came there to kill him that fateful night. And he was safe for the only time in his life, for the only time in his adult life. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but I believe my dad held court with the Lord and said to him, save my son, because not more than a few weeks later, on February the 2nd, 1979, two wonderful friends pushed their way past the filth of my apartment and the pizza boxes, and the Oreo cookie wrappers, and the Hostess Susie Q wrappers, and the Kit Kat bar wrappers, and they told me that the jig was up, and I was going to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous, which I had never heard of. I never, I was not someone who was familiar with 12-step life, and my life at that time was not worth living. Like my mother, my greatest ambition at that time was to die. I didn't have the onions to take a shard of glass and cut my throat. I didn't have the onions to get a gun somehow and blow my brains out. But if I had them, I would have done that. Because long before that day, my life turned into a hell of food and lies and money and physical discomfort and physical absolute pain that was of the most excruciating the excruciating variety that my vocabulary is inadequate to, to, to even uh, explain it. Everything in my life, every single thing in my life was painful and everything was a life of alienation from the world that I was born into. I saw the dating and I saw the relationships and the wealth and my friends were starting businesses and they were inheriting businesses from their parents and going to work for relatives and blah, 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 blah. And it always seemed that I was looking at life through this fence 
and I, my, I had my face and my arms up against the fence, and I could kind of see you guys, and you were beckoning me over, but I couldn't, I couldn't get over there to be with you. I was over here with the food. My food habit in the 1970s, not my heroin habit, not my cocaine habit, my food habit in the 1970s was about 100 to $150 a day, and my income was nowhere near that. I wrote bad checks to anyone dumb enough to cash them. I robbed Peter while I robbed Paul. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I didn't have underpants on. I had towels shoved between layers of flab. I had so much fat on my body that it was that the contact dermatitis underneath where my skin would where my stomachs would hang over was unbelievable. It was like setting me on fire with gasoline or pu- pouring gasoline on me and lighting the fire, lighting the gasoline. By the time I was out of high school, as a senior in high school, as I told you, I was 335 pounds. By the time I was in college, I was 500 pounds. By the time I graduated college, I was 600 pounds. I was to get up to about 700 plus pounds before it was over. But in 1979, when I first came in, I looked around the room And I knew that I belonged here. I knew that I belonged in OA because I knew that I was nuts with food. But as I looked around the room that night in Skokie, Illinois, at the Orchard Mental Health Center, I saw a bunch of people that looked like you. People that I was hundreds of pounds fatter than. People that were 30 years older than me, 40 years older than me. I was 24 years old when I came in here. And I wondered, what on earth are you doing here? Because I couldn't figure it out for the life of me. What the hell you were doing here? And I came in and I got talked to by a lot of wonderful people and most of it did not seep through my brain. I wasn't ready to hear the information and to tell you the truth at that point in my life I thought that recovery and and health and I thought that a good life as they were promising me I would have were for other people but not for me. I had been a terrible son to my mother. I had been a not so great son to my dad although better. I didn't really feel as if the life that they were promising me was achievable and I came in met some critical people key people came out in 1983 came back in 1986 and something happened in 1986 that was pretty cool when I came back in 1986 I met some more wonderful people Some of those people that I met the first go-around, I still talk to and communicate with every single day. I'm so lucky. I'm so wonderfully lucky. But there was a particular guy in 1986. He was six feet tall, six foot six actually. And he was a wide-shouldered as this damn double door here. And he put his face in my face and he asked me, Are you out of ideas yet, kid? I was a kid. I was 30 years younger still than any of them. And he would poke that finger in my chest and he'd say, out of ideas yet, kid? (laughs) And he, he pointed out some things that I needed to see because I had a big book from 1979, but they snuck some stuff in there 
by the 80s that I didn't see. And the first thing they snuck in there is, if you want what we have and you are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about this weekend here in this room is recovery as opposed to dieting with group support. We're going to be talking in this room, especially since today's Founders Day, June the 10th, we're going to be talking specifically how to work the steps and how to recover rather than just giving you esoteric recovery stories. But it says, if you want what we have, and he blocked the door at the Lincoln Park Alano Club in Chicago, and he says, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm here for a meeting. And he said, that's not good enough. And I said, he said, why are you here? And I couldn't come up with the right answer. And he was a, he was a real, real something. Rhymes with stastered. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, he'd poke his finger in my chest, which I hated. And he'd say, what's in there? And I'd say, well, there's recovery in there. And he'd say, what's that? And I couldn't come up with the right answer. So he told me very loudly in my ear. He said, there's people in that room and they're not eating compulsively. Now, is that a big deal, he'd say? I'd say, I guess, oh, a dog. Um, and he'd say, that's not the big deal. The big deal is, and he was yelling at me, there's people in that room not eating compulsively and they are doing so happily. They are doing so, and they are happy in their release from the food. And there are people in OA that are not eating, but they are doing so in a miserable state of dieting with group support, hanging from the chandelier, stark, raving, abstinent. And they just ate lunch, and they're counting the seconds until dinner... And they're swinging from the chandelier, but they're abstinent. And he told me that there are people in there that are free in their release if you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it. Then you're ready to take certain steps. What is it that you, I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to work the steps of Overeaters Anonymous based on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am not going to be able to sit here and diet with group support. This is not a program of osmosis because I'm going to sit in meetings and through the chair and through my ass that something is going to come up from the chair and seep in and say, oh, this is something that's going to help me stay on my diet. It's going to help me stay on my diet. That's not going to happen. Nothing that I'm going to hear in a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous is going to help me to stay on a diet. If I could have stayed on a diet, I wouldn't know you, and I'd be home right now in Scottsdale, Arizona, not eating compulsively and doing whatever my friends are going golfing this morning at, this, at the some country club, I don't know. Somebody got a free pass or something. I don't know, whatever. But anyway, that's what they do in Scottsdale. Golf is like, oh, golf, it's a religion. Okay, so that's what I'd be doing right now, right? Okay, so that's what I'd be doing. 
Now, something else that was pointed out in this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that I never saw before in my life, and it is the thesis line of the big book, and it's on page 45 of the big book, in the middle of the page, and it says, the main purpose of this, the main object of this book is to help you fight, excuse me, a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. That means I'm going to have to find a power greater than myself or I'm going to die. And that's where they lost me is with the God stuff. And what I had to do was completely revolutionize my idea about this God issue. That I could discard that God that was forced down my throat as a kid in synagogue... I'm not knocking Judaism, it's, I'm not knocking it here, that wouldn't have kept me abstinent for eight seconds. I had to come up with a new God, and that God changes all the time. I have a God in my life. I have a higher power in my life. And as we're going to talk about as this weekend unfolds, steps two and ten are the most underutilized steps, and three and four are the most misunderstood. But 2 and 10 are foundational to my recovery. So I was going to have to come up with a God that I was willing to believe in. There is nothing in this book that says you must believe. There is only information that says you must be willing to believe. Do you believe or are you willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? And if you are, you have made a good beginning and you can begin to recover. So when I saw that, it struck me that I could let go of these old ideas. And what we're going to do this morning... When we get into Bill's story, is we're going to see how he struggles with this idea, how he struggles with this concept of a higher power, and what he did to overcome his own prejudice and his own uh, ego-driven madness. We're going to see that this morning. And then I took a look at something that occurs in the foreword to the second edition of the big book. Something very, very important for me to remember. It says very simply and very plainly, it said of a hundred people that came into Overeater or Alcoholics Anonymous, 50% of them, 50 of them got sober at once. And of the remaining 50, 25 of them got sober. And of the remaining 25, they showed improvement. Hi, Miriam. How are you? So good to see you. Okay, so of the remaining 25, they got sober. Now, that's 75% recovery. You with me? 75% recovery. Now, I have been in 38 of the 50 states doing big book studies, conventions, retreats. I've covered 38 states. I've covered two provinces of Canada doing big book. We in Overeaters Anonymous cannot talk about 75% recovery. We in Overeaters Anonymous cannot talk about 25% recovery. We in Overeaters Anonymous cannot talk about 3% recovery. We can talk maybe, maybe, maybe if I'm very optimistic 
we can talk about one and a half percent of the people that are coming into OA through the door that are recovering. And what is the difference? We get away from the message of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and we begin dieting with group support and we start making it into a nine tool program rather than a 12 step program. We start making it into call in your food, call your sponsor and make three outreach calls a day and that's the program. And the compulsive overeater cannot stay abstinent on that alone. The compulsive overeater like me will only stay abstinent when I have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps as laid out in this blue book that I'm holding in my hand called Alcoholics Anonymous. And unless I I have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, the desire for food will come upon me in such a way that it will be irresistible. It will be the sirens calling the sailors to the rocks where they will dash their ship. And one of the things we're going to talk about this morning, very soon, is we're going to talk about what this is and what this is not, and we're going to cover the doctor's opinion, and we're going to see why we eat, and we're going to get down to causes and conditions, and we're we're going to get down to specifics as to what this is. It's not going to be, a, I'm not going to sit here, if you're sitting here waiting for me to give you dieting tips, it's not coming. If you're sitting here waiting for me to tell you how to use the tools, it's not coming. And if you're, tell, if you're waiting for me to say something that's going to help you stay on your diet, it's not coming. What we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about recovery as opposed to dieting. And just to give you some of the statistics, I've lost a little over 500 pounds, and I have 18 and a half years of abstinence. I have a wonderful, wonderful life today, although I have my ups and my downs. I have human challenges because no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And that's why I need step 10, step 11, step 12. So this is very important. Now, let's take a look at some things here that are worth looking at. For thousands of years, thousands of years, going back 3,500 years ago to Israel, where King Solomon was the king at that time, people have wondered about what alcoholism is and what it is not. And people have wondered about gluttony, what it is and what it is not. And if you look in any good dictionary, gluttony is really what I am, a glutton. There's never enough of anything. And we go back all the way to King Solomon, who wrote that he believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no cure for it. Now, in the 1640s in England... There was another guy that celebrated the same holidays as me, and his name was Dr. Trotter. And Dr. Trotter believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no cure for it. One of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, a man who was to be appointed by George Washington as the nation's first Surgeon General, 
a man by the name of Dr. Benjamin Rush. And if you ever come to my city in Chicago, I don't live there now, but it's still my city. It always will be. And if you ever come to my city right now, uh, you'll see a street called Rush Street. And that's a very touristy. If you ever really want to overpay for a meal or you want to overpay for like a drink or something, go to a place on Rush Street and they'll be happy to like charge you four times as much as the same sandwich like three blocks over is half as much. But anyway, tourists like it so those places stay open and that's okay with me. So you'll see Rush Street so named for Dr. Benjamin Rush. In 1790, he formulated his opinion that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it, and he had no cure for it. Now, there in New York City, there was a neurologist unconcerned with alcoholism, unconcerned with this hole in the wall that seems to be something they can't fix or something. I don't know how that works. <laughs> unconcerned with addiction, he was a neurologist, and he, he had a, a passing interest in alcoholics, but alcoholics don't do something that neurological patients do, and you know what that is? They don't pay their bill. So he, didn't, he wasn't that keen on working with alcoholics. And he uh, was friendly with Charles Towns, who owned and operated the Towns Hospital in New York. And the Towns Hospital at that time in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, was the preeminent hospital for the treatment of drug addiction and alcoholism in the world. Now, something very important happened on October the 29th, 1929. October the 29th, 1929, Silkworth had too much exposure in the stock market, and he lost everything he had. And in uh, November of 1929, he signed on at Towns Hospital for $35 a week as the medical director of this hospital. And he observed many, many drinkers coming in and out of the town's hospital in New York City. And these drinkers would come in and he would patch them up or the doctors would patch them up and they'd load them up with B12, load them up with, you know, they'd feed them and they'd care for their, you know, medical needs and they would nurse them back to health. And these guys, mostly men, not, but just you know, mostly men. It's going to say men in the book, but mostly it was men. And these guys would leave, and some of them would never come back. They were scared sober. They never came back. Some of them would come back that day. Some would come back within a week. Some would come back certainly within a month. Hi. And they would come back within a month, and they were in worse shape than he had ever seen them. And he started to formulate an opinion of these people. And he started to notice that there was some differences in these people that came in and out and in and out. There were differences in the way they drank and differences in the way they thought, and differences in their behaviors. And let's go to page XXV of the, of the fourth edition of the big book of AA. 
Let's go to XXV, and let's take a look at what we have, and this is extremely valuable information. It says here simply, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. To whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. Now, when I see this word hopeless, that means I am out of ideas. I am, I am absolutely out of ideas. It is freezing in here, and I've got a sweater on, and... Um, I've got langagotchkas upstairs, if anybody speaks Yiddish. Langagotchkas are long underwear. I've got them upstairs, but I'm not wearing them. But anyway, okay, thanks. But um, this word hopeless means that I'm out of ideas. I am not going to recover if I'm holding on to ideas on how I'm going to do this by myself on my own. And the idea that I can't do this on my own, I can't do this by myself, is a hard nut to crack. But until that's cracked, nothing will take place. In the course of his third treatment, now he's obviously talking about Bill Wilson. And Bill is going to be hospitalized three times, and we're going to hear about that in the next chapter. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. And what is that possible means of recovery? We're going to get into that more in the next chapter. It is going to be the Oxford Group Movement. And that Oxford Group Movement is going to change his life and our lives forever. I think it's beautiful that we're here on Founders Day, June 10th. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. Now, this word recovered is a very controversial word. You don't hear it in most OA meetings. You'll hear it on Vision for You. And by the way, there's a bunch of cards here for Vision for You uh, to tap into the phone meetings, which is a beautiful, beautiful message. It is really the renaissance of OA is Vision for You. It's a pure, uncut message, and there's a bunch of information on it up here if you want it. It is a part of OA, not part from OA. Uh, vision is a part of OA. But anyway, I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Why am I recovered? Because I've had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. So I don't fight the food. I don't sit there and fight the food and diet with group support. There's a world of difference between someone who's recovered and someone who's dieting with group support. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. Now, I'm going to assume something if you're in this room, and I know assume makes an ass out of you and me. But <laughs> I'm in this room, and I assume you are too, because other methods had failed completely. If Weight Watchers or Tops or whatever 
would have cured me, I'd be back in Scottsdale, Arizona right now, not eating compulsively. I'd be back there doing whatever. Um, But I am here because these methods failed completely. But unless I expand, perfect my spiritual life, I will absolutely, as much horror as this disease has wrought into my life, I will go back to the food. It is a certainty. It is gravitational. As the mic will fall when I let go of it, I am certain to return to the food. As much of a nightmare as that food has been in my life, it will call me back. These facts, I'm at the bottom of XXV, 25 in Roman numerals. These facts appear to be of extreme medical... Am I doing this right? Did I do something here to screw this up? Hello. Okay. Appear to be of, of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, MD. Now listen to this because it's important. You're sitting here in 2017 and you've got more recovery at your disposal. It's in your purse or it's in your pocket. You can go to your phone and you can tap into podcasts and speakers and AA speakers and OA speakers, and you've got online meetings and phone meetings and live meetings and this and that. They didn't. You walked in here on the shoulders of giants who risked their lives and risked their reputations and their professions so you could be sitting here today. When Dr. Silkworth wrote this opinion, he would not allow Bill Wilson to put his name in there. He told Bill, I will write this for you, but don't you dare put my name in there. The big book was written in 37 and 38, published in April of 39. Silkworth knew that alcoholism was not accepted by the American Psychiatric Association and the American Medical Association as a disease yet, and he told them, don't you dare put my name in there because this information is not you know, accepted by the mainstream. And Bill agreed. But in the 10th printing of the first edition, before the 11th printing of the first edition, Dr. Harry Tebow, noted psychiatrist, member of the Alcoholic Foundation, and Bill Wilson's psychiatrist, published a paper in which the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association had accepted alcoholism as an illness, and, and Silkworth told Bill, you can put my name in there on the next printing, the next go-around, and they did in 50 but Silkworth died in 51. But he remains to this day our great medical benefactor. He remains to this day someone that we lean on. And the depth at which you will accept what we're about to discuss this morning in his opinion will mark the urgency that you will work the rest of the 11 steps. Until this information is absorbed and believed, and conceived of, and surrendered to, you will not work the rest of the 11 steps with any type of enthusiasm. You just won't, because you'll, you won't see the need. This is the first step. The steps are divided into four sections. Admission, submission, restitution, and const- reconstruction. Admission, submission, 
restitution and uh, reconstruction. Not real important information in the larger scheme of things, but just so that you know. The first step is going to come from Silkworth. Now, let's take a look at the body of his opinion, and let's take a look at what we see here as being vital to our understanding. And remember that the first step is, and the first three steps are not working steps. They are conclusions of the mind. And as conclusions of the mind, he is presenting to you information that you can do anything you want with up to and including spin on it you can do anything you want to do with it but if you will absorb his information if you will conceive of his information you will then go ahead and work the rest of the 11 steps convinced that this is beyond your scope of power so let's take a look at what he has. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views. In another statement which follows, in this statement he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. Now, in OA, must is a dirty word. It's a filthy word. It's a four-letter word because people don't like to be told what to do and they'll rise up and say, I want to work it my way and I'm going to do things my way. And that's great. My way is a great song, but beyond that, it's nothing I want any part of. That I must believe, and the word must is going to appear in the book 72 times, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Holy mackerel, the body is abnormal as the mind? Because this is the very first time that any physical manifestation of the disease was even hinted at, let alone explained. Everything up until that point <clears throat> suggested that it was a matter of weak will, lack of willpower, insanity, stupidity, laziness. That if you weren't so lazy, you could recover. That if you weren't so dumb, you could recover. If you care about yourself, you won't eat that chocolate sundae. And we tried like the Dickens to live up to that, and we couldn't. Because there is a physical manifestation of this disease. We're going to get into that in just a minute. But this word allergy is something we are going to come back to. Let's finish the paragraph, then I promise I'll come back to it. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well in our belief. Any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. Now, in my life, I have had this conversation with myself millions of times. I'm going to eat an Oreo cookie. Screw these guys. They ain't going to treat me that way. Screw that witch. She ain't going to talk to me that way. I'm going to eat an Oreo cookie. And I have every intention of eating one or two, three at the most. And I eat an Oreo cookie. An Oreo cookie. I eat one. And then two. <laughs> and the first one I eat, I eat rather normally, kind of, sort of, you know. And then the second one goes in faster, and the third one goes in faster. And by the time I snap my fingers, the entire three rows of Oreo cookies is gone. And I'm on the phone with somebody going, now remember, double cheese, double garlic, and double pepperoni. And how long do you think it'll be before that gets here? 
okay, if, they're, if the guy can get here in less time than that, there's a fin in it for him. Okay. That's the con- that because I'm I'm on the phone with the pizzeria in case you're not getting that. Okay, fine. <laughs> if I have to explain them, then we're not really good. Okay, so thank you, Len. Thank you, thank you. Len got the joke. Okay, fine. All right, now what happened? Why was I unable to stop? Now this word allergy bothered me. I came in. And people would say, don't eat chocolate turtles. You're allergic to them. And I'd say, you're crazy. I'm eating 40, 50 chocolate turtles a, a week. I'm not breaking out in a rash. I'm not, uh, I don't have itchy, watery eyes. I don't have, I'm not, you know, whatever. And they'd say, never mind, just don't eat chocolate turtles. And that wasn't an adequate explanation for me. Now, I went to a source of information which is wonderful. Some of you may even remember this source of information, although most of you won't. It's called a dictionary. If you don't know what a dictionary is, you can Google it. It's a dictionary. And in this dictionary, they had the word allergy. And I found an explanation or a definition of allergy that suited me perfectly. And that definition was an adverse abnormal reaction. Adverse means it's harmful. Abnormal means most people do not react the way I do. So if my reaction to an Oreo cookie is adverse, harmful, if it's abnormal, most people don't react the way I do, then I am considered to be allergic to chocolate turtles. Because the more I want, or excuse me, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I, and it's just endless. My friends could sit there at a restaurant and they've got real crispy french fries in front of them and they're holding a conversation with somebody and the fries are sitting there screaming my name. And the ketchup is doing backup singing, going, Harlan, come and eat me. Or one of my favorites is you'll be at a restaurant and it'll be somebody's birthday and they'll get one piece of cake or pie and they'll have five forks and there's still pie left at the end. Or one of my other favorites is, oh, it's too rich, it's too sweet. Or my all-time favorite, Who could eat so much? Step aside, witch. I'll show you. Because in their bodies, the more they eat, the less food they want. In my body, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, and it's just endless. It's it's to infinity. There is no way that that reaction in me was normal. Now, if most people react the way they do, and most people are normal, then I'm abnormal. And if the reaction is harmful, it is adverse. So that word allergy just simply means an adverse, abnormal reaction to a food, beverage, or substance. 
that's very important because that's going to be something that we're going to need to know if we're going to work our food plan, that I must be devoid of allergic foods, that these foods must go. Okay. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he then has a better understanding, better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. What is Dr. Silkworth telling you here for the first of three times? You must put down the food. You have to put down the food. I'm going to say it again. You must put down the food. There are speakers in OA and there is literature in OA that tells you explicitly you may eat while you're working the steps. There are speakers in OA that will confirm for you that if you want to eat M&Ms with peanuts, and I don't know why anybody would eat the other kind of M&Ms, obviously these are not Jewish people, but the bottom line is, is that if you want to eat M&Ms, and please, if you're going to do that, eat the ones with the peanuts, not the other ones, um, that that's okay. I am here to tell you I I absolutely... Uh, deny that information for me and my story. If I'm still eating, if I'm still compulsively overeating, I am not available to have a spiritual awakening as a result of anything up to and including a visit from Moses or God or whoever. I am not going to have a spiritual awakening because when you fill me up with food, I'm not available for anything. I cannot think about anything else other than getting more food. I become a shark an eating machine, eating money machine. And Dr. Silkworth is very clear. And anything this weekend that I say that is not in accordance with the big book, you are encouraged to ignore it. But this is something I am reading. This is something I'm looking at, that I must be free of the food. How long do you have to be free before you work the steps? Probably about two days. Probably about a good two days of abstinence clean as a whistle, and then we can begin. But when you hear this narishkeit, narishkeit is a Jewish word for foolishness, that you can continue eating while you're working the steps, remember in your mind that if this big book is the basic text of our recovery, it is clear that you may not do that, that that is not doable. The doctor writes XXVII. XXVII is 27 in Roman numerals. The subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. 
We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. What is he telling you in that paragraph? That we as doctors, because remember, he is a doctor. He's not not a member of OA or AA. He's a doctor. He's a man of science. What he's telling you here is they know what's wrong with you and there is nothing they can do to help you. There's absolutely nothing they can do to help you. They can load you up with amphetamines. They can give you surgery. They can do certain things, but that's not going to cure you. That's not really going to help you. At some point, if you are a compulsive overeater, you're going to have to have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, or you are going to return to the food. We'll examine why in just a few minutes. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book, Bill Wilson, came under our care in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. And what are those ideas? He got exposed to the Oxford Group movement. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power. Notice that power is capitalized. He's talking about God, that pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Now, let's take a look at the second warning. Of course, of course means of course. The al- an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological, spiritual measures can be of maximum benefit. What's he telling you here for the second time? Put down the food. You must put down the food. That's what he's telling me. We believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. There's that word again. And if I'm going to continue to ingest my allergic foods, my allergic um, substances, I'm going to continue to drift away from recovery and into the arms of the illness. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Let's take a look at what we've got here. It says here, these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. I've got 18 and a half years of abstinence. I also have been in this program in and out since 1979. That does not qualify me to eat chocolate turtles or Kit Kat bars. It does not qualify me to eat chocolate cake. If I eat chocolate cake or I eat a Kit Kat bar, I am going to trip that allergic reaction 
every single time, no matter what I do, there is never going to be a time when I'm going to be able to eat those substances with any safety. Those substances will trip that allergy because an allergy is forever. I have a lot of other allergies, hay fever, I've got rose fever, I've got a lot of other allergies, and I have to carry this schmata around, this, this handkerchief, and I've got to blow my nose. I've been blowing my nose here for 63 years, for crying out loud, but I can never be around pollens, and I can never be around certain allergens and not have to blow my freaking nose, just like the food. I cannot eat them. I can't eat them today. I can't eat them tomorrow any more than I could eat them yesterday with safety. It just doesn't happen. It says here, once having formed the habit, found they cannot break it. They lost their self-confidence. Of course I lost my self-confidence. I lied to myself every minute of every day. I reached out for dreams and couldn't achieve them because of this illness. I couldn't achieve a damn thing on my own. I couldn't do crap on my own. I lied to me. So of course I lost my self-confidence. The whole world told me that if I just had some willpower, I could resist the temptation to eat chocolate cake. And I tried with all my heart and all my soul to resist the temptation of eating chocolate cake. And once I ate some chocolate cake, I ate all the chocolate cake I could get my hands on. I couldn't, I couldn't yield to their warnings. I just couldn't do it. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. Frothy means without substance. So frothy emotional appeal, bribing me, browbeating me, nagging me, lecturing me, hitting me. I've had people come up to, it, to me in restaurants when I was way up in weight and they would take food off my table, food off my table and give it to the busboy and say, take this away, he doesn't need this. I've had people come up to me and slap my stomach I've had that I didn't even know them. I've had people laughing at me. I've had people, I've had children laughing at me. I've had people yelling things at me from cars. I've had all manner of abuse in this illness. I have been ostracized. I have been made fun of. And I have been forced into positions where I had to pretend that it didn't bother me. Because if I would have given in to the feelings that I was really having, I would have either become suicidal, homicidal, or both. I did not know how to handle these feelings that came over me when I became an object of ridicule. I often wondered what prenatal crime spree had I masterminded to doom me to a life of this. Really, this is what it's about. So I really didn't want to live. I really did not want to live in this world because all I felt I was worthy of being was an object of ridicule that was going to live alone in his home, never holding a girl's hand, never kissing a girl, never going on a date, never knowing what it's like to look good, never knowing what it's like to feel good, never knowing what it's like not to have fissures in my feet, the cracked skin, never knowing what it was like not to have two, three stomachs and three, four asses. If I would sit down, I couldn't get up. If I got up, I couldn't sit down. I couldn't get in a car. I couldn't get out of a car. I couldn't go to the movies because I couldn't fit in the seats. I couldn't go anywhere where there was a turnstile. 
style. I couldn't fit through. If I dropped something, it was just lost. I couldn't wear socks. The swelling in my lower extremities was so profuse that I had dime and, and penny size ulcers on the back of my legs where the pus used to leak out. I couldn't do anything like a normal person. I could never look in a mirror and think that I looked good. I could never walk down the street wearing clothes like other people. I'm sorry, but a seven extra large shirt just doesn't look like a medium shirt or a large shirt. It just doesn't. And a size 70 inch waist doesn't look the same on a man as a size 30, 40, 42, 36, whatever it is that that person is. It just doesn't look the same. And it doesn't look the same when you're four or five times the size of anybody in your environment. It just doesn't. So, of course, I didn't want to live. Of course, I didn't want to do those things. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. We're going to talk about that. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. Now, we're going to talk about that for just a minute here because this is worth knowing. I wish there were more of you here, but I'm hoping somehow God will take this message out because this is an important message in OA. We are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to attract new people into these rooms, and we should do that. That's good work. We should do that. We are spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men and women hours attracting new people into these rooms. That's good work. We should do that. But there are people that are dying of their untreated eating disorders sitting in the room next to you and we are hugging each other to death. We are hugging them to death. They are getting bigger and bigger before our eyes and they are dying and they don't have the support that they need from within the fellowship. We have become so politically correct that we would rather kill somebody than confront them in a nice, loving way. You are charged with that message. In order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight, which means you are the only group of people that can carry this message because it cannot be carried by someone who doesn't have this illness and there's just no way. But you can carry that message. And I... I, I, I see this in OA all the time and it's the person that's dying and they're sitting in the room already. That's the pathetic part of it. We've already got them. We've already seen them coming into the room and we can't, we won't, we won't lovingly say to that person, can I help you? I love you. Can I help you? What's going on? And I know a lot of the times they say nothing, but you've planted a seed. By confronting them, you've planted a seed. Sometimes they will go home and curse me, but sometimes they'll go home and call me in tears saying, you're right, and I need help, and can you help me, and can you this, and can you... I've had that happen too. But we're so... Hi, Hannah. We're so afraid of that that we won't do it, and that's where we're losing a lot of people. We must reach a bottom, certainly. The fear 
of the food must the fear of letting go of that food is is very tough but we have to fear the food more than we fear letting it go we have to hit that bottom we have to come to that point where life just isn't worth living anymore and we are willing to let the food go yes we need help now you may say to me but i'm powerless i'm powerless you're not helpless you have a meeting you can get to, you have, a, you have a fellowship here, you are not helpless. You are powerless, but you're not helpless. So you, you as an individual, whether you're listening to this on a podcast or you're listening on a CD, <coughs> you're here in the room on June the 10th, 2017, and you're struggling, if you're struggling, I certainly don't know, but the bottom line is, is that you can reach out and we will help you. I don't care what time it is. I don't care what the situation is. There is somebody there that will help you because we need to help you. We want to help you and we will. We will. You can count on it. Okay, going back to the book now, it says here, if, if any feel that a psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line, see the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children, let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments, and the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Now, this next paragraph is a cornerstone of recovery. This next paragraph is a paragraph that if I'm your sponsor, we will be talking about for the rest of our lives. And we will refer back to this paragraph, maybe not every day, maybe not every week, but we will refer back to this paragraph for the rest of our lives. And it simply says, Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontent unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity and impunity. Impunity comes from the same root word as punish. So we see that our friends can drink McDonald's milkshakes. Our friends can eat cheeseburgers and French fries and Kentucky Fried Chicken, which is really chicken-flavored donuts or whatever. But they can eat these things, and seemingly they don't get punished for it. Okay, after they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. Now, let's take a look at what that means. Let's take a look at something, and we're going to smash through some of the myths of OA right now. Let's take the first myth first. This paragraph is telling you and me that food is never the problem. Food is never the problem to the compulsive overeater. Food 
is the solution to the problem. Now, if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of everyday, normal, human emotion. Now, all human beings have happiness, sadness, jealousy, rage. All human beings have these emotions. And in a normal human being, when these emotions build to a certain level, they can dissipate the emotions by doing simple, mundane things. They can, for example, go to the gym. They go to the gym, they punch it out, they come home, they're fine. You've seen them. They can have a drink of wine or whiskey or whatever they drink. They have a drink and they're good. Teach you another Yiddish word. Genug means enough. Genug means enough. Genug. Okay. Genug. They're good. They can make love. They can walk the dog. They can play with the cat. They can go fishing. They can go do whatever they do. And they're fine. But in our minds, these emotions will pinball around at an amazing rate. And they will wake up the mental twist and the mental blank spot. We have a part of our brain that they don't have. It's called the mental twist. And the mental twist is that signal, that irresistible signal that says, eat an Oreo cookie. And the intelligence side of the brain, see this mental twist is on the emotional side of the brain. But on the intelligence side of the brain, the brain says, oh no, don't eat that Oreo cookie. You eat that Oreo cookie, you're not going to fit in your clothes. You eat that Oreo cookie, you're going to eat all of them. You eat that Oreo cookie and you're going to look like crap. You're going to be farting and you're going to be this and you're going to be that. Don't eat that Oreo cookie. But on the other side, the emotional side, there's also the mental blank spot. And the mental blank spot is the built-in forgetter. It does not allow me to remember what the food does to me and will only allow me to focus in on what the food will do for me. And that food will give me that instant sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly and effortlessly by eating the food. And so in a normal person, the, intelli Hi, Mel. the intelligent person... I mean, the non-addicted person, the intelligent side of the brain will win over the emotional side of the brain. In an addicted person, the emotional will triumph over the intelligent. And we will eat the food in search of relief from the pain of not eating. And we will eat the food. And for about nine seconds, I feel fantastic. You give me an Oreo cookie or a Kit Kat bar, oh my. When I'm in line at the store buying, buying, I never buy one Kit Kat bar. Obviously, I buy like 24 at a time or 20 at a time, whatever it is. And I, I've got those Kit Kat bars in my, in my possession. My, I can feel my blood pressure going up. I can feel my mouth start to sell. I haven't even eaten it yet. I have start to feel the, the salivary glands going into hyperactivity. I feel more relaxed. I know that relief is at hand. And I'm walking very, very quickly, even if I weigh four, five, six, seven hundred pounds. I'm walking as quickly as I can walk to get out of the store so I can begin eating these Kit Kat bars. The adrenaline is flowing through me, and I haven't even eaten it yet. 
there is an abnormal reaction. And then I eat the Kit Kat bar. There's four sections to a Kit Kat bar. Trust me. Four sections to a, to a Kit Kat bar. I've got the first two in my mouth, and the other two are waiting to go in. And when I eat that first bite of Kit Kat bar, what problem? What girl did I have a crush on? I can't even remember who the hell she is. I can't even remember the problem because I feel fantastic. The food became my solution to the problem that day. My solution was the food, not my problem. Now, let's take a look at something else. Now that I've got that Kit Kat bar inside of me, what have I now done? I have tripped the physical allergy. That subpoena, that biological mandate to eat more of the same. And now I'm eating more Kit Kat bars and more Oreo cookies than I had originally planned. And I'm eating and eating and eating out of control. Now, was food my problem? Absolutely not. Food was my solution to the problem. There's two doors in front of me. One is the food. One is the spiritual awakening. Those are the only two doors there. So it begs the question, what if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? What if I could find a way to live where my mind does not lock in on that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating a Kit Kat bar? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? And the process of bringing that comfort into my life through a power greater than myself, through working the steps, is very simply called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about substituting the effect of the food for the effect of the spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. And the steps have none of the death-defying side effects that the food has. So I am substituting one solution for another solution. And that is basically what we're doing here in OA. We are substituting one solution for another solution. And the second solution, that recovery, because we've tried the food a million times, and if that worked so well, we wouldn't be here. So we are looking for a substitute relief to the pain of not eating. And the pain of not eating is more than I can bear. So I'm going to have the buildup of emotions. That's inevitable. But I'm also now going to work the steps instead of eating the food so I get relief. Sometimes this helps new people to understand step one. I am powerless over my emotions and my food is unmanageable. I am powerless over my emotions and my food is unmanageable. Kind of puts it into a little different perspective. There's no way for me to control my own emotions. I cannot eradicate jealousy. I cannot eradicate anger. I cannot eradicate fear any more than I can eradicate that today is Saturday. I can't do it. I simply cannot do it. 
Okay, I hope that helps. But food is never the problem. It is the solution to the problem. <clears throat> Page 29, Roman numerals, XXIX. <clears throat> On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. Suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. And the rules are the steps. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal, Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change, spiritual awakening. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. So once again, he is telling you that it's not a matter of willpower. I have a friend that lives in Los Angeles. His name is Roy. Roy does big book studies just like I do, only they're different. And he comes into a room and he'll say, how many of you are compulsive overeaters? And lots of hands shoot up. And then he'll say, how many of you are ashamed of it? And lots of hands will still be up. I'm going to tell you again, you had nothing to do with it. This didn't happen because you zigged when you should have zagged. It didn't happen because you're stupid or it didn't happen because you're smart. It didn't happen because you're a Jew or a Gentile or you're a Muslim or you're a Buddhist or you're a whatever you are. It happened because it happened. Now what are you going to do about it? I have to get out of the forensics. <clears throat> okay. I've had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date and the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. What happened with the meeting? They were anticipating this business meeting and what built up within these men? Emotions. And when the emotions built up, they took a drink. When they took a drink, what did they do? They tripped the allergy. Once they tripped the allergy, they could not stop drinking. And once they couldn't stop, they couldn't make the meeting. And this we see happening again and again and again and again. Is food the problem? Absolutely not. The problem is the buildup of everyday, normal, human emotion. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. And I'm reminded of my friend Sherry B. And I miss her terribly. Um, she was a wonderful, wonderful person. She was a therapist's therapist. She had more degrees in psychology than a thermometer. She was 
beyond PhD, beyond postdoc, beyond all that stuff. And she wasn't going to put the food down until she could come up with the forensic analysis of why she was eating it. And she died at 400 pounds alone in her condominium in Chicago. And I miss her. And there are many, many people who miss her tremendously. She was a dear, dear soul. And I will remember her fondly and love her for the rest of my life. I was following that path. I was not going to put down the food. I, I was surrendered to death. I just wanted, people would say to me, you're going to die. I'd say, good, when? But, you know, I learned not to say it to them because, you know, they just get more mad. So I would just say it to myself. I'd say, I hope it's tonight. The only thing I'd like is about 10-minute warning so I can get all the Doritos and Kit Kats and Oreo cookies down my stomach so at least I can die with a full stomach. Now my goal to, when I die, I want to die clean as a whistle. I don't want to die in the filth of the food. I want to die clean. I want to die abstinent. I don't want to die in the filth of the food. Back to XXX, there are many situations which arrive out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. The classifications of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps. They are always over-remorseful and make many resolutions but never a decision. We're going to learn in Chapter 5 this afternoon that Step 3 is both a beginning and a decision, that it's a beginning and a decision. There is the type of man who is unwilling to admit he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There is the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. There is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. There are the type entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. There's probably not too many people in this room, if there's any, that are not able, intelligent, friendly people. As I look around, some of you are sound asleep, but the ones who are awake look like they're nice and they look like they're you know, friendly and intelligent people. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. That's that physical allergy. Why did he call it a phenomenon? He called it a phenomenon because he didn't understand it himself. He knew it was there. He knew that there was a phenomenon of craving, but he couldn't explain it any other way. Okay, this phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. And that entity is alcoholism or compulsive overeating. I am a member of a distinct entity. I am a compulsive overeater. I am not a moderate eater that went crazy. I'm a compulsive overeater. I have a twist of the mind and an allergy of the body that are irrefutable permanent. The only thing they, that, that I can do is work my steps and have a spiritual awakening. <clears throat> the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. So once again, he is telling me for the third time to put 
down the food. And anybody that tells me anything different, I'm not going to listen to that because the big book is the basic text. And the big book says the food must be down. This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. Now, this first example is going to be about a guy by the name of Hank Parkhurst, and the second is about a guy by the name of Fitz Mayo. They are both prominent people in the history of AA. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life, was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features. But there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and deciding his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn, determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt the only, his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology, spiritual awakening, and we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then. He is as fine a specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and perhaps he came to scoff. He may remain to pray, William D. Silkworth, M.D. Now, again, Silkworth risked his career so that we could be here today. Now, the depth at which I accept the doctor's opinion will mark the urgency with which I will work the rest of the steps. And we've, in summation, food for the compulsive overeater is never the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. The problem is the buildup of everyday normal human emotions, which in us bring about tremendous pain from not eating. And that pain is too much for us to bear. Too much for us to bear. And we seek relief in the one thing we know will hurt us, but it will relieve that pain and it is the food he says we admit that it's injurious but we cannot tell the true from the false and we seek relief in the food and the only 
substance, or the, the only substance, the only substitute that I have is a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Now, I'm going to take three questions, but here are the, wait a minute, there are three types of questions I do not take. Number one, don't ask me how you can sober up somebody else. I'll answer that for you now. Recover, recover, and recover. I don't know about somebody else. I don't take food questions. I don't know what you should be eating. I don't know what you shouldn't be eating. No food questions, and for God's sakes, no math questions. No math questions at all. I'll take three, and then we'll move on. Red vest. Do you think you are born? Yes. Yes. It's not nurture, it's nature. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that there are substances like cocaine and heroin that will produce their own, their own addiction, but I do not think food is one of those things. You either have this or you don't. You either are this or you're not. So, uh, outside issue as far as we're concerned. I don't, I, it's an outside issue. This is OA. So that's one. I'll take two more as long as there's no math questions and no food questions and how am I going to sober up my uncle. No, going once. Go, okay. You had uh, admission, submission, and I think Restitution and reconstruction. Restitution is amends, and reconstruction, 10, 11, and 12. Those are the four sections of the steps. This afternoon, we're going to find out where these steps come from, and we're going to see their origin. Yes. No. No. I think the trauma will bring up those emotions so that it will heighten things, but you either have this or you don't. There are twins grow up in the same house. They have the same mother, the same father. They sleep in the same bedroom, and one is 375, and the other one is 202. One is an alcoholic, one isn't. One is a drug addict, one isn't. So I am not a believer that nurture has that much to do with it. I think nurture might be a catalyst that had come about in an earlier age. But no, you either have this or you don't. There are people that have suffered rapes and, and, and molestations and abandonment, and they do not become compulsive overeaters. So you either have a pension for this or you do not, in my opinion. Yes. Oh, I'll, I'll, all right, one more. Okay. Right. For me, it came about immediately. I'm not one of those people that it came about later in life. I don't know about that. But what I believe is that you either have this or you don't. You either, you either are this or you are not this. Uh, cocaine, heroin, uh, certain other narcotics, if you use them, you will become an addict. Heroin will produce its own addiction. Um, uh, cocaine will produce its own addiction. If you use that substance enough, you are now hooked. But with food, if, if you locked 100 people in a, in, a, in a log cabin and force-fed them chocolate sundaes, 90 of those people will walk out of that log cabin and they'll say, I'm never going to eat a chocolate sundae again as long as I live. And the other 10 will say, are you going to finish that one? <laughs> you either have this or you don't. Okay, um, I need a small potty break, but we've really got to hustle here. It is now 10.16. At 10.25, we're back.
So don't take too long. Don't dilly-dally too long. 10.25, we're going to tackle Bill's story. Bill behaves, and through identification, we're going to buy in. Oh, sorry. Thank you. We're going to buy into the entire thing. So we're going to look at the life of Bill Wilson. And the reason that this story is in the beginning of the book is to identify into and to get you into the rest of the, of the book. But if you look at the history of AA, most of it is right in here in the story. And Bill was a very, very smart man. And he was a very capable man. He was born on November the 26th, 1895 in East Dorset, Vermont. Very, very small town. I've been there. Man, if you blink, you miss it. I'm telling you, this is a small town in Vermont. And his mother and father were Emily and Gilman Wilson. And um, he has a sister a couple years younger than him named Dorothy. And she is going to marry a doctor by the name of Leonard Strong. And he is going to figure into the history of AA. And he's also going to figure into why we're here today. Bill Wilson's parents divorced when he was just in, in 1906. He was born in 1895. And in 1906, when he was 10, because his birthday is in later in the year, um, right now, eight, or excuse me, 11, 10. He was 10. He was still 10. They divorced and Dorothy and Bill were raised by grandma and grandpa Griffith. Grandma and grandpa Griffith were his maternal grandparents and Bill was raised by them. And there was a tremendous stigma of divorce at that time. There is still some, I'm divorced. I've been divorced for seven years. There's still a stigma in it for me. I don't like the fact that I'm divorced. But in 1906, there was a tremendous stigma to it. And he felt that stigma of divorce. Now, Bill's father was an alcoholic. And Bill's mother had had enough of his father's alcoholism and showed him the door. And he went on a business trip to Western Canada and never returned. And in Western Canada, there is the same kind of lumber and limestone and marble that there is in Vermont. And he went out there to work in what he knew. Well, Bill's mother also abandoned the family by going to Boston to become one of the nation's first female osteopathic physicians. And she went out there to Boston. Bill was raised with Dorothy by the Griffiths in East Dorset. Bill was a very determined child. He was a very smart boy, very hardworking. Later in his life, he passed the Edison test. If you don't know what the Edison test is, it was a test given by Thomas Alva Edison in New Jersey to see which young boys he would work with in math and science and engineering. And Bill passed the test, but he didn't work with Edison because he knew that Edison would always be the number one man in that organization, and he wanted to be the number one man. Bill was a very hard worker. While he was a student in grammar school, he found a violin up in Grandpa Griffith's attic. And the violin called to him, and he worked tirelessly at the violin. 
and he became the co-first chair of the string section in his school's orchestra. He also found a, a baseball glove up there, worked tirelessly, and he became the starting shortstop and co-captain of his school's baseball team. Bill also read in a book <clears throat> that only an aboriginally origine could fashion a boomerang that would actually come back to you. And he worked tirelessly at fashioning a boomerang that would come back to him. He cut into his headboard, much to the chagrin of grandma and grandpa. He cut into his headboard. And when I was in East Dorset, Vermont, you can see the headboard and you can see the boomerang. But they come with you when you go up to his room to make sure you don't take any souvenirs, you know. But they come with you. But you can see the boomerang. It's still on his desk. You can see his desk. You can see the bed that he slept in. You can see his dresser. You can still see it to this day. It's, it's something that you should do. You should do that before, before God closes your eyes. Before you get where you're going, go to East Dorset, Vermont, and go to Akron, Ohio, because that is, that is something you owe to yourself, is to get to these places before you get where you're going. And Bill was also a person who suffered from depression all of his life. He was a depression case. And he was in love with a girl named Bertha Bamford, and Bertha Bamford, when they were 17 years old, went to New York. This was the love of his life. Bertha went to New York City with her parents to, do, to get a, what was described as a routine operation. And Bertha died on the operating table. And he fell in at age 17 into one of his deepest and certainly earliest depressions. Bill also suffered his whole life from anxiety. He suffered from clinical anxiety. And uh, this is something that impaired him quite a bit during his life. Bill was a determined, but determined person. And um, he met Lois and married her on the 24th of January, 1918, during the period right after World War I. Bill served in World War I, as we're going to find out this morning. But Bill was a very, very smart man, a very capable man, and we're going to see in his story that it is, his story is divided into two sections. The first eight pages are about Bill's plunge into the abyss of his alcoholism, and the second eight pages is how, through encountering the Oxford Group movement, he is going to, God is going to affect a recovery therefrom, and we're going to see his recovery. So let's get started on page one. Page one. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. Plattsburgh is a city in upstate New York. We were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last. In the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and prejudice of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. Over there would denote World War I. Over, you've heard the song over there, over there. That's World War I, not World War II. 
I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a dog roll on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Now, what is he looking at there? He is looking at a soldier who was not killed in battle. He was looking at a soldier's tombstone that was killed by drinking too much beer. He drank himself to death because pot has nothing to do with marijuana. Pot is how they drank beer in England in those days. And there were pint pots and quart pots. And it was considered extremely bad manners to sit and consume alcohol. They would stand and in the, in the saloon, in the inn, they would erect a bar that the boys could lean against. But they would serve them the liquor if they were standing. And so to this day, as an homage to that, a bar stool is always raised above the level of a kitchen chair, a dining room chair, a living room chair. It is always raised above that level as an homage to those days. And when the boys would get a little too rowdy, the barkeeper would say, watch your pints and quarts, because that's how beer was served, pint pots, quart pots. They'd say, watch your pints and quarts. And in the late 1600s, early 1700s, as um, merchant marine would come over from England into the colonies, that expression of watch your pints and quarts became Americanized into watch your P's and Q's. And that's how it comes into our language today. Watch your P's and Q's. See, we give you everything here. We're going to give you a little Yiddish. We're going to give you some... uh, some etymology, we're going to give you some history, we're going to cover everything today except math. We're not going to do any math. No math, so you can all relax. No math. Ominous warning, which I failed to heed. Page one, bottom. 22, and a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation, my talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. Top of two, I took a night law course, and obtained employment as investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I'd proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some had become very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or right. Though my wife, though my drinking was continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would steal her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. Now let's pull that apart just a little bit here. Let's go back up to the part where it says here, potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. So alcoholism is starting to divert Bill from his dreams, his wants, his desires, 
his aspirations to doing the bidding of alcoholism. He was reaching out for something, and he did become an attorney, but he never practiced. But the bottom line is, my dreams, and I bet some of yours, were altered permanently by this addiction. I reached out for things, and the disease just slapped my hand. Now, let's take a look here where it says, though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk. <clears throat> Excuse me. That the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. What is happening here? What is going on here? What is he doing to Lois? What is the first victim of compulsive behavior is the truth. The first thing when addiction is practiced that goes out the window is honesty. The first victim of, of addiction is the truth. And he is lying to Lois. He is telling her that there's good reason why he's getting drunk when in his mind he knows it's BS. By the time I had completed the course, middle of two, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. Now, I want to put into perspective this $1,000 situation here. You have to remember, now this is 2017, and some of you have credit cards in your pocket right now, most of you probably do, that have limits that are higher than $1,000. Now, $1,000 in the 1920s was big money. You could buy two new cars for $1,000. In the 1920s, you could get a Ford Model A, brand new, right off the assembly line for about $495. You could buy two new cars and get $10 change. Or in Chicago, if you ever want to play around on the internet, you can see prices in Chicago during the early 20s. You could get a brand new house for about fifteen dollars to $1,800. Not in a schlock neighborhood either. I'm talking nice. I'm talking, I'm talking where you'd want to live, where you'd be proud to call it home. I don't know about the picket fence or anything. I'm not sure. But the bottom line is you could get a brand new house for about fifteen, eighteen hundred dollars $1,800. You were good to go. So I'm putting it in historical perspective because I want you to see that he is very successful. When he puts his mind to something, he is very good at what he does. Okay, so it went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and management, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. So in the 1920s, you have the greatest period of growth 
at that point in the nation's history. And the stocks were so unbelievable that literally if you took a chimpanzee and you blindfolded it and you said, throw a dart at the board, Bonzo, and Bonzo throws a dart at the board, any stock that he would hit, you can invest in at about a 10% margin, you're going to make money because things are just going up and up and up. And you saw that in the mid-2000s. About 10 years ago, nine years ago, you saw the very, very same thing in this country where stocks were just going crazy and housing was going crazy. And Bill Wilson says, we need more information. And his friend on Wall Street, Frank, he says, oh, you're overreacting. You're nuts. But Bill, he was cunning, baffling, and powerful too. So he gets his mind into something and he's going to go and he's going to Um, get this information, and Lois went along with him for one reason and one reason only. She's a raving Al-Anon, and she figures that if she goes with him on this jaunt, and you can see pictures on the Internet, and he's driving the motorcycle, and she's all bundled up, and she's got the stuff, the tent and all the books and everything, and they're cruising along, and she's in the sidecar. The reason she was doing it is she figures, he's drunk, let's do what he wants, maybe he'll stop drinking. Yeah, good luck on that. So the bottom line is, she's going along with it as an Al-Anon, and he's doing it because he's a drunk, but he wants... He wants to find out this information. Let's see where we go from there. Bottom of two. We gave up our positions and off we roared on a motorcycle, the sidecar stuff with tent blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of a financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. Top of three. I had had some success at speculation, so we had a little money, but we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there, and the use of a large expense account, the exercise of an option, brought in more money leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. He's making top surgeon money now. He's doing very well. He is becoming one of the princes of Wall Street. He's sought after. People are looking at him. Now, he self-describes himself as a stockbroker. He's not a stockbroker. What he is, is he is a New York City stock speculator. What he is, is he speculates on where stocks are going to go, up or down, and people pay him for his opinions because he has a very good track record. He's making money. He's doing well. They're living on Park Avenue. Now, Lois Wilson, Lois Burnham, was not... um, Lois Burnham's father was not a big fan of Bill Wilson. Let's just put it that way for right now. Not a huge fan of Bill Wilson. First of all, Lois came from money. Lois's father was a doctor. He was a genetic doctor. And um, 
Bill was a little younger than Lois, which at that time was not really done. Men married women that were a little younger than them, or they married them that they were the same age. But Lois was a little older than Bill, and she, he, the, the Burnhams, he and she, Burnham, mother and dad, doctor and missus, didn't like this drunk guy from East Dorset, Vermont. But they had a home in Manchester, Vermont, which is where the elite come to play there, and I saw Manchester, Vermont when I was there. With that in mind, let's see where we go from there. For the next few years, fortune through money and applause my way, I had arrived. Here's the kid from East Dorset, Vermont, never had anything in his life, came from a small town, and all of Wall Street is at his feet. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. Just imagine what that would do to your ego if lots and lots of people, based on your opinion, invested millions of dollars. My, 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 my. I don't know what that would do for you, but that would send my ego into the stratosphere. That would just be amazing. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weather friends. Everything he's ever wanted was there. He's got the wife. He's got the Park Avenue address. He's got these guys. They're his friends. They want to rub elbows with him. They can't wait to get to know him a little bit better. Let's see where he goes in just a couple of sentences. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances, remonstrances are protestations, of my friends terminated in a row, not a row, a row, a row is a quarrel, and I became a lone wolf. Now, let's take a look at what we've got here and take a look at why this is so vital. The reason that this is vital information is because of the identification that it bears. And that identification is when given the choice between alcohol and everything he's ever wanted. What does he choose between alcohol and everything he's ever wanted? He chooses alcohol. Now, an intelligent, non-addicted person chooses everything they've ever wanted in life. He chooses alcohol. Can I identify with Bill Wilson? You bet that I can. Everything I ever wanted was out there in the world, and on a a one-day-at-a-time basis, a a one-minute-at-a-time basis, I chose Oreo cookies and Kit Kat bars and milkshakes at McDonald's and French fries over every dream, every aspiration that I've ever had since I was born. Now, a normal person does not do the, make those kind of choices, but I was under the gun of something that was bigger than me because food was doing something for me for me that none of those other things could do for me. What the food could do for me was give me an instant sense of ease and comfort that came about as the result of eating the food when the emotions became too painful, when the emotional level became too high. So was alcohol his problem at that time? Absolutely not. Alcohol was the solution 
to his problem. The problem was the buildup of normal human emotion. Is success an exhilarating emotion? You bet it is. Is happiness an emotion? You bet it is. You bet it is. It doesn't say negative emotion. It doesn't say catastrophe. It's just the human emotion. I've eaten when things went well. I've eaten when I've had good fortune. You know, not everything that happened to me in life was horrible. There were times, there were instances where there were things that would happen in my life that were actually quite wonderful. And in those times, I found celebratory music in the words, Welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order, please? I would find great, great music in those words and they welcomed me in to that little drive through window where they handed me a bag and, and they said, here, go die. No, they said, here, here go die. You know, go, go do whatever you're going to do. The Ramon, okay, there were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, helped at times by extreme drunkenness, kept me out of those scrapes. Mm, I'm not so sure. There is a book in AA called As Bill Sees It. There's a book in OA called As Lois Remembers. This is one part where they're not exactly the same. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. So what are we getting up to here? We're almost up to... Uh oh. Okay. 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country, my wife to applaud, while I started to overtake Walter Hagen. Walter Hagen was a top golfer at the time. Just think about Tiger Woods or any of these guys, although he's in trouble now. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to caroam around the exclusive course, which had inspired inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Somebody's got to make a spot for Millie because she's like my favorite person here. <laughs> and Jerry is now here as well. So there's another. And when I went to East Dorset, Vermont, I was with Jerry because we're talking about Bill's story. Okay. Abruptly in 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, five hours after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape that, which bore the inscription XYZ32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished, and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. Let's take a look at what's going on here so we can put it in good perspective. Now that Millie's here, I've got to stand up more because it's, it's showtime, right? Okay. We've got the Great Depression starting on October the 29th, 1929. Never before in the history of the world has such a catastrophe, and have we encountered such a catastrophe. We had a situation here in this country not long ago in the mid-2000s where you had 10 and 15% unemployment and people were beside themselves. 
1929, in November of 1929, you have among whites 50 to 60 percent unemployment. Among blacks, you have 90 to 100 percent unemployment. Among Native Americans and Hispanics, Oriental, any type of minority, you have 90 to 100 percent unemployment. Prices were very low in stocks, and the, the market was in shambles, absolutely in shambles. Real estate became worthless. Stocks became worthless. Everything that you could imagine became worthless overnight. And when the United States of America catches cold, most of the other places in the world get pneumonia. And we have a situation that is catastrophic. And these guys are jumping off the building. And Bill is disgusted. Make note of that in your mind because we're going to refer back to that. He is disgusted by the fact that these guys are jumping to their death. Why were they jumping? They were jumping because their God was dead. Their God was the board, the stocks. Their God was the board. That was their life. That was how they took care of their families. That was how they gained their credibility in the world by outsmarting that board. Bill says, that disgusted me. Make note of that. I went back to the bar. Why? Without knowing it cere cerebrally, what did Bill know emotionally? That there was whiskey in that bar that would make him feel better. Was Bill's problem liquor that day? Absolutely not. What was Bill's problem? It was the buildup of everyday normal human emotion. The world as he knew it was coming down around their ankles. Everything was different. He goes back to the bar. That old fierce determination to win came back. He's got liquid courage surging through his veins. He takes a drink of whiskey and he can't stop drinking. Why? The first drink was because of the mental twist. The 83rd drink was because of the physical allergy. And if he can't drink because of the allergy and he can't keep from drinking because of the twist of the mind, he is powerless over liquor and his life is unmanageable. Or as we said this morning, let's switch it around. I'm powerless over my human emotions and my food is unmanageable. I'm powerless over my human emotions and my food has become unmanageable. Okay, I'm going to stay on my feet as long as I can, Mel. You know, I love you. Okay. Next morning, <laughs> I probably need it. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. That was his friend, Dick Johnson. And he had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me. Elba is where Napoleon will return from to reconquer Europe. St. Helena is where he is banished to at the end of his life and it's curtains for him. So uh, St. Helena is the end of it for him. But drinking caught up with me again and my generous friend had to let me go. This time we stayed broke. Now, before we read the next sentence, I want to give you a little historical context that's not here, but I think it will amplify the meaning for you. The Burnhams, as I told you earlier, were no fans of Bill Wilson. But Lois, in 1929, had an ectopic pregnancy. And when she got this ectopic pregnancy, I don't have the time to go into what that is. Uh, she got this ectopic pregnancy. Go ahead. And um, 
she was bleeding. She was hemorrhaging. So this is in the days when doctors made house calls and she called the doctor, couldn't reach him, so she calls daddy. Daddy was a doctor, Dr. Burnham. And she calls and says, Dad, I'm bleeding. I, I can't stop. You've got to come over here. He comes over about 7, 8 o'clock at night and he brings his daughter to Roosevelt Hospital in New York. And they leave a note on the kitchen table. They say, Bill, we're at Roosevelt Hospital. Lowe is having a problem. All night long, no Bill. No, no Bill Wilson. Nine o'clock the next morning, here comes Bill Wilson. Stinks to high hell. Filthy, dirty, no shave, same clothes he was in yesterday. He's got body odor. He stinks from the liquor. He's pissed in his pants. He's been vomiting all night. I mean, he was a sight and a, he was a stench to behold. And Dr. Burnham left word with the nurse that he is not to be admitted to Lois's room until Dr. Burnham has a chance to talk to him one-on-one. Well, the last person... I almost said something else. The last person that Bill Wilson wants to talk to at this point is Dr. Burnham. And Dr. Burnham comes out and reads him the riot act. And Bill Wilson had thrown in his father-in-law's face his great success and living on parking. Hey, look, you didn't like me. You didn't want me marrying your daughter. Look at her now. She's living on Park Avenue. Look at her now. Bought her a fur coat. Look at her now. Bought her a diamond necklace. Look at her now. Bought her diamond earrings. And he rubbed it in Dr. Burnham's face. And now, the conquering hero, let's pick it up at the bottom of four. We went to live with my wife's parents. <laughs> I found a job, then lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hang-around at brokerage places. Lois is at the, at the department store. They're living in a little apartment within the apartment in the Burnham home. And Lois is leaving for work. And when you work in retail, you work long hours. You work long hours. She's in that department store from 8, 9 in the morning till, God, 8, 9, 10 at night. On her feet, selling cosmetics. And she's in high heels all day. And she's got to put herself together. And God knows what she says to him. You stinking drunk. I mean, she says to him, Bill. Please, if you could just find the time, please take a shower or a bath. You stink to high hell. Please shave yourself. You look like garbage. And if you could, you don't have to wash them. Just take the dishes from breakfast and just put them in the sink. Please. She comes home. Dishes are still on the table. He's in the same clothes. Still hasn't shaved. Still hasn't brushed his teeth. But now he's drunker than ever. He's been drinking all day long. So you can just, the reason that I'm going into this is to give you an idea of what his domestic life is like at this time. 
And so the more unhappy he is, the more he drinks. The more he drinks, the more unhappy. And it's just on and on. Was liquor his problem at that time? No, it wasn't. It was his solution at that time. What caused Bill to take the first drink? The mental twist. What caused Bill to stay drunk the entire day? The physical allergy. And he knows it's injurious. Remember, Dr. Silkworth says, although we admit it's injurious. So you can see where this information is continually repeated. And when the big book wants to teach us something, it doesn't give us information once or twice. It gives it to us repeatedly, repeatedly, because it's so vital for our development. But it's going to come at us from different directions and different ways. So now can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I can. I see the way he thinks. I see the way he drinks. And I can relate absolutely. Let's see where he goes from there. Let's go to the top of five. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Man, I do a lot of retreats and a lot of conventions. I could do a whole retreat just on that sentence alone. You give me that sentence and I'll make a Friday night, Saturday, all day, Sunday retreat out of the whole thing. Liquor ceased to be a luxury and became a necessity. I remember when I was five years old, six years old, seven years old, I would be higher than a kite from some Sara Lee brownies or from whipped cream or from ice cream. But after a while, the food stopped working. I couldn't eat enough of it to catch that buzz. I couldn't eat enough of it to take the pain away. And so I would eat the food because of the mental twist, continue eating the food because of the physical allergy, but it stopped working. It, was, it just didn't work anymore. It wasn't giving me that buzz. That it, and I used to have to eat a lot more food as time went on to catch that same relief from the pain that I used to get from just an extra sandwich or an extra brownie or extra ice cream. I remember very, very distinctly, very distinctly, I couldn't sleep the night before the Shamrock Shakes came out at McDonald's. I was so excited. I was so excited. And, you know, I got, I got through about three of them the next morning. And you know what? I had to still go back for fries and cheeseburgers because the milkshakes weren't taking that edge off of me anymore. I remember that distinctly. It just wasn't working anymore. I was about 17 years old when that occurred. <laughs> then they came out with information that the green dye in the shamrock shakes was poisonous or something. So if the lights go out and I still glow, you'll know why. <laughs> you'll know why. Okay. It became a necessity. Bathtub gin. Now, what's bathtub gin? It's just what it sounds like. Remember, this is the days of the, of the depression, but it's also days of the prohibition. Thank you. It was prohibition, so you, you couldn't buy liquor at the store. You had to make it or you'd have to find a bootlegger. Two bottles a day and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars. Now, again, that's good money. And I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. Why is he shaking? He is shaking because he's getting delirium tremens. Now, some of these guys, I, I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years. 
There is no OA in Eugene, Oregon. There's no such thing. You have to go to AA. There's no OA there. It doesn't exist. I started meetings. Every one of them failed. But anyway, you see these guys, and you talk about a drinking problem. They can't even hold a cup of coffee. I mean, they can't even get it to their mouth. They look like a dog trying to crap out a peach pit. They just can't, they can't sit, they can't stand still. They can't sit still. They just can't. And, and it says here, a tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required. Keyword there is required. If I were to eat any breakfast, nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. And there were periods of sobriety, which renewed my wife's hope. What's he doing there? He's going on a diet. Thank you. He's going on a diet. He's trying to control his drinking while he's drinking. Now, I bet there's nobody in this room that can possibly relate to that. That is just no way can can you relate to that. And that's why we do this story. That's why this is so vital to our development is because it's because of that identification. Gradually, things got better. Nope, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits, and I went on a prodigious bender, and the chance vanished. This is a story within the story. This takes place in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. A number of years ago, my friend Kim invited me out to Mount Laurel, New Jersey, and I did a retreat there. You, it's right outside Philadelphia, really. It's in South Jersey. Cherry Hill represented a group of people from there who knew about Bill, and they knew how good he was at things, and they wanted him to put together a deal for them, which they would cut him in on the profit. But when they met with him, he was on one of his quote-unquote diets. And they said, well, we don't want you drinking. If you drink, we're not going to deal do business with you. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. I've quit drinking. Because he doesn't know anything about alcoholism. He just knows he's made up his mind, and he's a smart guy, and he is not going to drink anymore. So they go to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and they have a meeting in a hotel. And somebody passes around a bottle of Apple Jack whiskey. Now, Apple Jack was the kind of whiskey, but it was homemade because, again, this was prohibition. And he says, the bottle comes around once, Bill doesn't take any. Now it comes around again, and the guy says, hey, Bill, I made this myself. It's called Jersey Lightning. And without any more thought than that, Bill takes a drink of Jersey Lightning and doesn't come out of that hotel room for three days and they will not do business with him. What caused Bill to take the first drink in the face of everything he knew that would happen if he did? In the face of the knowledge that he was going to destroy this chance, that he was going to have to go back and tell Lois, Lo, guess what? I got drunk again. It was the buildup of emotions which triggered the mental twist. What caused Bill to get so drunk he couldn't walk for three days? The physical allergy. The physical allergy. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. I did. 
Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, going back on my diet, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksuredness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. Now, He's going into a cafe to make a telephone call because he's got it pre-rehearsed. But lo, I was just in there to make a phone call. They didn't have a phone at the flower shop. They didn't have a phone at the barber shop. They didn't have a phone at the furrier. They didn't have a phone at the pet store. They didn't have a phone at the dry cleaner. Yutz has to go into the cafe to make a phone call. Why? <laughs> because he knows that there's going to be there's going to be drinking in there, and this way he could just tell Lois, well, I was just in there to make a call, Lo. There's an old expression, you hang around the barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. And so the bottom line is, is that he's in there, and what caused him to take the first drink? The mental twist. What caused him to keep drinking? the physical allergy. He's beating on that bar. No matter how fast the service was at a restaurant, no matter how fast that service was anywhere, wherever I went, it was never fast enough. I have very distinct memories of going to like Dunkin' Donuts, perfect example. I would tell the person that was making me up a dozen donuts that I'm going to take a couple of these eclairs and not tell them I was going to buy a dozen donuts, even though they probably knew. I didn't want to tell them because then they would stop and they wouldn't give me everything until they were done. And I didn't want to wait until she was done giving me the, the, the stuff. I wanted those eclairs in my hand immediately so I could down them while she's making up my dozen donuts. And I'm making up a story of I should get this kind for this person and this kind for that person. You know, you've all been there and they were all for me. I don't, the only one that, that cared was me. But I'm making up this elaborate story of who the donuts are for. They're all for me. And I finished most of them in the car on my way to McDonald's or on my way to 7-Eleven or wherever. The remorse, I'm on page six. Horror and hopelessness of the next day morning were not, were, uh, are unforgettable. I knew I'd get it back. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. <coughs> Excuse me. I, th that was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that, so two bottles and oblivion. So now he's not making fun of the people that want to kill themselves, is he? He's thinking about it. Now let's also look at what we're seeing here. Let's look at the progressive nature of this illness. He just drank two bottles of gin. Not two glasses of gin. Not two servings of gin. Two bottles of gin. 
Look at how drunk he is. Look at the progressive nature of the illness. Can you relate to this? Is this identifiable to you? Yes, because the older I get, now I have a nutritionist, and I always tell her the same thing when I see her. I hope you get trapped in a burning building and they can't get you out. Why? Because I know that every year she's going to take food away from me. She's going to take food away from me because I'm getting older. She's going to cut limits. She's gonna... You don't think of this when you start in OA. She took away bananas. She took away green grapes. She took away red grapes. She took away raisins. She took away things that when I came into OA, I would have laughed if you'd have told me these were going to be a problem. But the witch took away these things because... <laughs> Because I can no longer eat them safely because unlike alcohol and narcotics where our allergens are always clear cut, the alcoholic knows if they drink alcohol, they will trigger the allergy. Our allergens change and evolve over time. She took olives away from me. I couldn't eat olives anymore. I, I could go through four or five cans of olives. You wouldn't want to be anywhere near me because what those farts are going to smell like will kill you. Is this on tape? Oh, okay. But she took, a couple of years ago, she said, no more green olives, no more black olives. I said, I hope you get trapped in a burning building and you die in there and they can't get you out. Then it was grapes. Then it was red, red grapes. Then it was green grapes. Then it was raisins. Then it was bananas. I mean, what's next? I mean, what are you going to give me? A thimble full of something and that's it for the week? I mean, come on now. But this is a progressive illness. So when you read these words, two bottles and oblivion, can I relate to the progressive nature of this illness? You bet I can. You bet that I can. Because I may not have drank two bottles of gin, but what I did do was I would eat more and more and more cake. Some cake worked when I was a kid. The whole cake didn't work when I was older. Two cakes didn't work because it didn't give me the necessary respite from the emotional buildup. So can I relate to Bill's story now? You bet I can. And this is stuff that in your meetings, you see people going over two bottles in oblivion and they don't even, they don't even stop and talk about it. It just means nothing to them. They're going to talk about the dry cleaner or the pet store or something else. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Stop right there. How I made it through the loneliness of going on my first date when I was 35, I don't know. How I made it through the contact dermatitis, I don't know. How I made it through my skin being on fire like that, I don't know. How I made it when I broke furniture and fell, I don't know. How I made it through people coming up to me in restaurants and taking food off my plate, off my table, and giving it to the busboy and saying, he doesn't need this, and I didn't even know them. How I made it through being the object of ridicule from children and adults, I don't know. How I made it through being laughed at and pointed at as a freak, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't want to live. 
I didn't want to make it. I begged God for death. But he obviously had some, some fate for me. He obviously had some destiny for me, which at the time and even now, I'm not sure what that is. But I do know one thing. He didn't save me to drop me. He didn't, he didn't save me to drop me in Lake Michigan now. He saved me to bring me to Oak Street Beach, to bring me to the shore of Lake Michigan. He's not going to drop me in the lake now. He's going he's to continue helping me, and he's going to continue blessing me. Sometimes I get to the point where I look at that checkbook and I say, Oi, Vey, how am I going to make it? And somehow I do. Somehow I do. I've been divorced for seven years. Every bill that came in went out paid. Every, I've existed and lived and everything else, and everything is fine. I mean... Uh, do I wish I was, you know, 15 again? Sure. You know, do I wish I had it to do over again? Sure. I think everybody does. But the bottom line is I am where I am and I'm in my skin and I'm in my feet and I'm in my shoes and Millie's here and everything's okay. You know, when Millie's here, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. I st- sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back, and my wife and I sought escape. What they would do is they did a lot of geographicals, Lois and Bill. When he was drinking in the country, that meant, you know, they would go into the city. When he was drinking in the city, they would go into the country. Dr. Burnham had a place in Manchester, Vermont. He also had a place in upstate New York. There were flights from sitting. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture were so hellish I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking and I was 40 pounds underweight. Is his being 40 pounds underweight that different from me being hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds overweight? No. He was dying of malnutrition. And a lot of alcoholics die of malnutrition. They get alcoholic gastritis and they can't eat food. Sometimes they get a sense that they better eat a bologna sandwich here and there or they're going to starve to death. And if there were no olives in their martinis and their witch nutritionist doesn't take olives away from them, that's about the only food they're going to eat for any given period of time. But a lot of these guys just can't eat. They can't look at food and not get nauseated because of their gastritis. They, They just can't do it. Now, we're going to start to see... We're going to start to see the constellations of recovery start to come around, and we're going to start to see the hand of God. Let's take a look at the next paragraph together on page 7, and let's see where we go from there, and we'll give you some backstory. My brother-in-law, that's Dr. Leonard Strong, married to Dorothy Wilson, is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. Now, let's take a look at what's happening here. Bill was broke. 
but his mother had some money and his brother-in-law had some money. And even though everybody turned their back on Bill, Dr. Leonard Strong stayed buddies with Bill. He loved Bill very, very much. And this isn't going to be the only time he's going to come into play in the history of AA. I don't have the time to go into that. But of all the hospitals that Bill Wilson could have been admitted to, he's going to go to the town's hospital in New York City. And of all the doctors that he could have met that would have patched him up and put him back on the street, he's going to meet Dr. William Duncan Silkworth. And Dr. Silkworth is going to explain to Bill about the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. He's going to tell Bill what the problem is. He's going to tell Bill that an alcoholic mind and an alcoholic's body are different from the mind and the body of a heavy drinker, an occasional drinker, or a whoopee drinker. He's going to tell him what he has put together. So... We see some miracles already. Let's see where we go from there. This is 1933, by the way. 1933. Okay. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly, even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. Now, the goose hung high means times were good. A goose is a symbol of prosperity. In literature, in history, a goose is a symbol of prosperity. He is now on a diet. Okay. Now, he is going a full year from 1933 to spring of 34. And what happens in the spring of 34? But it was not. Bottom of seven. The frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. Spring of 34. And this was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. A wet brain is really a dry brain because the cells of a body can rehydrate themselves and that's why a lot of these alcoholics they wake up from a drunk and they feel like they swallowed a sandbox but the liver and the brain cannot rehydrate themselves and a wet brain is really a dry brain and they become vegetables is really what they become as a vegetable and it's a pathetic pathetic thing see at least Alzheimer's has the decency to kill you at least Alzheimer's has the decency to take you out but um, wet brain, these guys can live like that for decades. And they get them up in the morning and they change their diaper and they feed them and they put them in front of the radio or the TV. And nobody knows them. They don't know anybody. It's just really a pathetic situation. And Dr. Silkworth, upon seeing Bill for the second time, is telling Lois in the doorway that this is what she's going to have to do. And Bill is hearing this because he's waking up. And they didn't realize he could hear them. And they're talking about committing Bill to an insane asylum like Belleville, Bellevue 
or they're going to have to put him in some sort of locked facility because at that time there was nowhere to send him. Bottom of seven. Can we relate? Absolutely. Absolutely. I can. They did not need to tell me, bottom of seven. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my, cap- and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining the endless procession of sots who had gone on before. <clears throat> Excuse me. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. No better description of step one hopelessness than that. Food was my master. It ruled me. It dominated me. It made every decision for me. It would not allow me any freedom whatsoever. Trembling. Now this is 1934, spring of 34. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. That's November 11th, 1934. He went golfing. A whole story I could tell. I don't have the time. But he goes golfing and the bus breaks down. He ends up in a restaurant and it was armistice day and the guy says were you guys in the army and yeah i was in the army here it's on the house drink on the house he drinks it and that's it i was off again everyone became resigned to the certainty that i would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end how dark it is before the dawn in reality that was the beginning of my last debauch i was soon to be catapulted into what i like to call the fourth dimension of existence that's the title of our of our convention here today before i go home i'm going to get a t-shirt the fourth dimension the first dimension is height then width then depth and the fourth dimension is the dimension of the spiritual it's the dimension of god i was to know Happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen with a certain satisfaction. I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dare hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. Now, before we go to lunch... I know everybody's very excited that I might have forgot that noon is coming. Take it easy. Take it easy. I want to eat lunch too. I want to eat lunch too. We're going to go into a little bit of a backstory because you see it's 1934 and it's now November of 1934 and there's a ton of things happening and Bill is only aware of a small smidgen of those things. Now let's go to Rhode Island in our minds. Smallest state in the Union. Lots of money there. Rhode Island. Let's go there in our minds and there's a man there and his name is Roland Hazard and Roland Hazard was a drunk. He was an alcoholic but he came from old, 
old money. The Hazards came to this country in the late 1600s, and they owned a company called Burlington Mills. And if you've ever walked on a carpet in your life, chances are you've walked on a carpet that was manufactured by Burlington Mills. And they also owned large blocks of stock in a company that is still very viable and still very valuable today called Allied Chemical Company. And these were very wealthy people. And their wayward, drunken son, Roland Hazard, was embarrassing the family with his drinking and flirting with death all the time because of his drinking. Roland had a lot of money, but he had a desire to get sober, and he once had himself sequestered on a Caribbean island. And the quartermaster was instructed not to bring him any hooch, any liquor. So the quartermaster doesn't bring him any liquor, and for a year while on this Caribbean island, he manages to stay completely sober. He gets off the island and figures he hasn't had a drink for a year. He can certainly have one beer. And so because of the buildup of emotions, his mental twist says he can have a beer. He drinks a beer, triggers the physical allergy, and he's as drunk as a skunk within a very short period of time. And Roland Hazard was getting drunk in the 1930s when a couple of other things were at their zenith and one in in its infancy and one in its zenith. You see, what was in its infancy was the art of psychiatry. And in the 1930s, see, we think psychiatry has been around forever. It has not been. That's not true. The art of psychiatry as we know it today is a recent, is a recent phenomenon. It's a recent, it's a recent art. And at that time, because money was no object to Roland, he decided to seek out the services of the most preeminent psychiatrist in the world, Dr. Sigmund Freud, who also celebrates the same holidays as me. And Sigmund Freud wasn't taking on any new patients. So he went to another guy who also celebrates the same holidays as me, Dr. Adler. And Dr. Adler wasn't taking on any new patients. But he says to Adler, who can you recommend? Who's the number three guy? And Adler says to him, the number three guy is a guy in Switzerland. And his name is Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, Jung. And Carl Jung is very effective. So Roland gets on the ship and he goes, goes over to Europe and he goes to Switzerland and he meets Dr. Jung and stays under his care for one year. One year, Roland stays sober again and he's under the care of Dr. Jung, but he's gritting it and he's, you know, he's on stark raving, you know, sobriety, but he's getting psychoanalyzed and he's getting some benefit from that, but it doesn't cure alcoholism as many of us know. And many of you have thrown tens of thousands of dollars down the drain pipe thinking that it might. Well, Roland stays sober for a year and he decides to talk to Dr. Jung and Jung says to him, you know, I think my boy, you can go home. And Roland gets a clean bill of health from Jung and goes to Paris where he's going to catch a ship and from the Paris, he's, from the docks there, he's going to go home to the States sober, everything's good, everything's cured, everything's great. He's in Paris and who does he run into? Friends of his parents. And in Paris, he runs into a, fam- a, a husband and a wife who are dear friends with the hazards, his parents. And they decide to pop a bottle of the bubbly to celebrate Roland's newfound sobriety. (laughs) 
and they go into a cafe in Paris, and the Parisian bubbly hits Roland's lips, and he is drunker than you could imagine in a very, very short period of time. Roland Hazard goes back to Dr. Jung in Switzerland from Paris and says to Dr. Jung, what the hell? And Dr. Jung says, you know what? I misdiagnosed you. He could have been a real schmo and said, you know, you have a Valium deficiency. I'll just psychoanalyze you for another year and milked him for money. But he was too, too honorable a gentleman to do that. He says to him, Roland, my boy, you are doomed. You are an alcoholic. Now, is it odd or is it God that he got to Dr. Jung because, you see, Freud and Adler believed that all solution lie within the mind, the cerebral mind. And if, if Roland had gotten to Freud or Adler, we might be doing what too many OA meetings are doing, sitting around psychoanalyzing ourselves, you know. But Dr. Jung said to Roland Hazard, here and there, and this is where he breaks, breaks rank with these other guys. He says, here and there, there are people who have had vital spiritual experiences. He doesn't say spiritual awakening, which is slower, which is what I had. He says, but these are phenomenon, and I cannot explain them. But if you have such a spiritual experience, you might be rearranged. You might be re-altered in your thinking and your action and your behavior. And he says to Roland, I don't know how to tell you to get one of these, but there have been cases where, that, where people have had them, and it has rearranged their life. Roland, armed with this information, goes back to the States. Only this time, he doesn't stop off for a bottle of the bubbly in Paris. He goes back to the United States, but he doesn't want to go into a traditional church. And at that time, in its infancy, was a group of people that operated a lot of places, but they also operated in New York, and they were called the Oxford Group Movement. So named because their founder, Frank Buckman, who was a Pennsylvania Lutheran minister who operated in England near Oxford University, and people would see them coming and going and coming and going, and they would call them the Oxford Groupers, and that's where they got their name. And Frank Buckman never, ever wanted to combat alcoholism. He was trying, as best he could, to reinfuse enthusiasm. There's a good word, enthusiasm. It comes from two Greek words, entheos, from God. Enthusiasm, entheos, from God. He wanted to infuse enthusiasm in Christians that had lost their zeal for Christ, that had lost their zeal to be proud of their Christianity. And he goes to a mission in China and he sees people that are enthusiastic about their Christianity, that are enthusiastic about life. And what is the difference? That these people are altruistic. They are serving others with no expectation of a return. And he is very, very imbued by the spirit that it is altruism and service. Can you see this running through our steps today? Okay, good, good. 
Good. I don't have to go over that again. Good. Okay. So he sees this running through them and he goes back and he says, Eureka, I have found it. It's through service and altruism that we're going to re-imbue people with that enthusiasm. And sure enough, one of the guys that gets on board with this is a guy by the name of Sam Shoemaker in New York who's an Episcopalian minister practicing out of the Cavalry Mission in New York. Roland comes to the Cavalry Mission to this day in New York. In the Cavalry Mission, there's a stained glass window. It's to the right of the door, and it says, this donated in honor of Roland Hazard III. And I plan on trying to go there when I get to Newark for the Vision for You World Convention in Newark, New Jersey in September, which if you want, by the way, a flyer on, we have stuff up here for that. Now that we've done the commercial, let's get back to the show. So we have a situation where Roland goes into the Oxford Group movement and he meets a guy by the name of Zebra Graves Jr., who he finds out is also a drunk but is not drinking, and a guy by the name of Shep Cornell. And these are guys who landed on the Oxford Group shore and they were drinkers, but not, they're not drinking and they are doing so happily. Okay? Now, let's leave Roland in New York City and now let's go to Albany, New York. We're going to go upstate to Albany, New York, where a guy is living there and his name is Edward Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby Thatcher is a drunk, and his family is in Albany, New York, and they say to him, Ebby, get out of town. You're embarrassing us. You're getting drunk all the time. Go to the summer home in Manchester, Vermont. Now, Manchester, Vermont, don't answer this, uh, don't answer this Jerry, because I know you've been there. Okay, Manchester, Vermont butts up to what little town in Vermont? East Dorset, Vermont, but it's where the wealthy people have homes and where the wealthy come to play, and East Dorset is where the schmucks live. Okay, now, Ebby is in Manchester, Vermont, and he's getting the summer home ready for the family, and he's painting a wall, and he's drunk, and a pigeon lands on the wall, and he does what any normal drunk would do. He gets, goes in and gets a shotgun, and he's going to blast the pigeon off the wall. Of course, by the time he gets out there in his stupor, the pigeon's long gone. He starts blasting the, the roof with the shotgun, and the neighbors are getting scared to death. They call the police. This is, this is spring of 34. They call the police. The police come out, and they say, look, Thatcher, we're putting you on double secret probation. Did you ever see Animal House? They're putting, they're putting you on double secret probation. No, seriously, Thatcher, if this happens again, you're going to Brattleboro. Brattleboro isn't just a city in Vermont. It is where the insane asylum in Vermont is. And that's what they did with drunks in those days. They put you in the insane asylum. A couple of months go by. It's now August of 1934, and Ebby is driving drunk, and he drives right into a woman's house, right smack into the house. Doesn't show the slightest contrition, nothing. Says to her, hey, toots, how about a cup of coffee? She's incensed. She calls the police. Ebby is locked up, 
and he is about to be remanded to the judge for sentencing in late August of 1934 to the insane asylum in Brattleboro, Vermont. Right exactly at that time, as we come to September of 34. Roland Hazard is also on the move with Zebra Graves Jr., and they are going to visit the Hazards in Rhode Island. The Hazards are thrilled that their son is sober. They're quelling. Quelling is what Jews do when their children become doctors or president of the United States or something. They're quelling. It's just rapture beyond description. Rapture beyond description. So they're quelling. And they say to Roland, go for a vacation, Tatala. Do what you want. We'll pay. Don't, just go and do. And um, I used to have a neighbor, Mrs. Moskowitz, and she'd ask us if we were going to go to the store to bring her sunflower seeds and cigarettes. So we would talk to her for a few minutes, and she'd give us money, and then she, eventually she'd say, go and do so you can come back. Okay, so we would go and do, so they say, go and do, so you can come back. No, but they say, Roland, do, go where you want, and Zebra Graves Jr. says to his friend Roland, I would love for you to come to visit my family. Roland says, okay, and Zebra Graves Jr. just happens to live in a city called East Dorset, Vermont. Who else was from East Dorset, Vermont? Bill Wilson, very good. Boy, you guys are good. Okay. Did you see this before? No, okay. So, all right. Now, Roland Hazard and Zebra Graves Jr. hear about Ebby. Roland comes from a family that also had a summer home in Manchester, Vermont. Zebra Graves Jr. comes from East Dorset, Vermont. They hear about Ebby, and they knew about Ebby, and they go before the judge who's about to remand Ebby in September of 34 to the insane asylum in Brattleboro, and the judge just happens to be Zebra Graves Sr. And they go to Zebra Graves Sr., and they ask him if instead of the insane asylum, could they take Roland to the Oxford Group meetings in New York at the Cavalry Mission. Ebby is brought before the judge in chambers, and he is signing extradition papers. And those extradition papers mean that if he doesn't do whatever Roland and, and Sebra tell him to do, that he will be immediately remanded back to Vermont and to be sentenced to an undetermined uh, amount of time in Brattleboro Insane Asylum. So he is not exactly a fireball of enthusiasm, but he is now under the care of two guys... And he doesn't want to be, but he's now in the cavalry mission in September of 34. September to October, he gets one month of sobriety. He's working their six-step program. He has one month of sobriety. October to November, he has two months of sobriety. And he's working an Oxford group program. And they say to Roland Hazard near the end of November that he must now go give testimony. And he says, what's that? And they say, go tell someone else what God did for you. And he says, I don't want to go give testimony. Somebody will think I'm a goofball. And they said, oh, that's not a problem. You could go to Brattleboro and be in the insane asylum or do this. <laughs> so he says, you know, I, I, I think I'll go give some testimony. 
Not being a fireball of enthusiasm, he go and he thinks, you can tell I raised a daughter, think, think, Winnie the Pooh, think, 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 think. Who can he give testimony to where he won't embarrass the daylights out of himself? And he thinks about his old drinking buddy, somebody that he was very close friends with, somebody that he did a lot of drinking with that lives in Brooklyn, and that guy's name is Bill Wilson, and he's about to go pay a call on Bill Wilson, and um, we're going to break for lunch, but I want to give you the backstory. so please remember that when we come back, because we'll be referring to some of it, and there will be a test, so <laughs> let's come back, it's going to be noon, let's, what time are we scheduled to come back here, 1 or 1.30? 1.30 works good for me, 1.30 we'll meet back in this room. <laughs>